Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. This is rumor control, here are the facts. As some of you know, a 337 model EEV crash-landed here at 0600 on the morning watch. There was one survivor, two dead, and a droid that was hopelessly smashed beyond repair. The survivor is a woman. The fallen review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. When they first heard about this thing, it was crew expendable. The next time they sent in Marines, they were expendable too. What makes you think they're going to care about a bunch of lifers who found God at the ass end of space? You really think they're going to let you interfere with their plans for this thing? Today, as part of our Alien series, we'll be discussing Alien 3. Have you got some sort of plan? This is a Ledworks, isn't it? All we gotta do is lure the fucking beast into the mold. Drown it in hot lead. All right. So how do we do that? Yeah. What are we gonna use for bait? Starring Sigourney Weaver. This is a maximum security prison. And you have no weapons of any kind? Charles Dance. I want to help, but I need to know what's going on. Or what you think is going on. Charles S. Dutton. Why should we put our ass on the line for you? Your ass is already on the line. The only question is, what are you going to do about it? And Lance Hamrickson. You know who I am? You're a droid. St. Model's bishop. Sent by the fucking company. No. I'm not the bishop android. I designed it. Directed by David Fincher. You've been in my life so long. I can't remember anything else. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Hi, Ripley. Ooh, I like your new haircut. It's Gally in Glasgow. Oh, just a poor sinner in the hands of an angry god. It's Devlin in London. Fuck! It's Patrick uh, in Cardiff this time. Yeah, well, you don't want to know me, lady. It's me in South Korea. Oh, welcome back to the show, listeners, and uh, welcome back, Devlin. And today we are we are as a gang of double Y chromosomes uh, at the Rewire Movie Podcast. We're heading to Fury One Six One as we continue our journey through the Alien series with David Fincher's much maligned entry. Alien 3. And and before I ask you guys of your first experiences on this one, um, probably the closest to a British film that we've done so far, po- uh, you know, apart from Ratcatcher. Equally depressing, though. Uh, so, I mean, guys, what are our first experiences with this one? Well, I eagerly awaited Alien 3, or Alien Cubed, as Paul McGann jokes on the, the commentary. Um, <laughs> along with probably Jurassic Park and Last Crusade, it was one of three that I really looked forward to and anticipated, even though I was very young. I was 10 when it came out, but probably 11 when I saw it on, on v- by the time it came out on VHS. I saw it with my friend uh, Peter, who is now a doctor, and he hid behind our living room chair the entire time. And uh, <laughs> I remember my mum 
who'd kindly rented it for us, um, coming in and saying, Matthew, it's every other word in reference to the <laughs> amount of uh, fucks in the, in the screenplay. Uh, so she was kind of disappointed, I think, but she let us go ahead and watch it. And um, he was more terrified than me. I was just kind of taking it in. And I, I was into the Aliens magazines at the time. I mentioned on the Aliens podcast, we used to get them sent every month to our news agents and you could read about the upcoming film in there. So you'd get like snippets from the comics and things. Uh, so I was really ready for this one. Um, so I'd like to thank my mum for renting me all of these films because half of the things we talk about, I wouldn't have had those early experiences if it wasn't for, for her. Uh, I think if my dad had known what we were watching, it would have been switched off pretty sharpish. Um, yeah. So, and then in, more recently in 2007, uh, when we made uh, The Wilds at film school, I used it as a, a reference for how to do a creature in a in a film because we didn't actually have a creature. We just had a, a really rubbish little <laughs> panther tail. Do you remember that? Uh, like, <laughs> panther tail and a, and, a, and a dead carcass. Uh. Yeah, so I, I could shoot it dead. That was no problem. But anything with the creature in motion was really difficult. So I resorted to this POV style thing that Fincher used uh with this, he used a very warped version of it, but I just used a, a fast kind of undercranked POV for this to get the speed of the creature. So that was my uh, other key experience with the film. And then I, I rewatched it, both versions in the lead up to this. So, uh, yeah, I'll hand over Devlin. How about you? Um, I didn't have, uh, I don't remember having a particularly formative early viewing experience. I remember the, uh, the poster used to be on the, on the tills, uh, the spa shop, which was also the video shop in Herworth for, for years, long, long past its release date. And I have no idea why they never changed it out. Um, and I would have seen it at some point, but I don't remember a great deal about it. I then, I know that we watched the assembly cut, uh, at film school. At some point, and so, since then, that's that's it. That was it up until this week. Um, so yeah, I, I don't have a, a, a ton of memories of this one when it came out, uh, and I haven't seen it very much since. So as with maybe some of the other ones, I'm, I'm a little fresher to it um, than than perhaps some of you guys. So uh, please do forgive me if I'm not. As Ofei on the details, I do remember watching the uh, the making of documentary though. That uh, I'm sure me and you uh, watched together. I think Gally. Yeah, we did. I mean, um, I, certainly from from my perspective, I would I was trying to work out which of the which of the Alien films I'd seen the most, and I think it is actually Alien Three. Um, and the reason being is a bit like you, Matt. I was also uh, looking to Fincher for some inspiration, and so the film I made at film school. This was probably the biggest influence uh, when it comes down to the placement of the camera. I was um, I was just kind of in awe. I'd never seen a film that had so many kind of low angle uh, shots and and the way that his coverage is just very very unique, very distinctive. And uh, and I, I kind of uh, there's no there's no getting around it. I was cribbing it um, for for my own for my own film. And then that's, de that's definitely where we would have seen it because, um, I, basically anybody worked on it, which was you, Patrick, uh, Luke, uh, Quinny. I was just like, 
watch Alien 3, watch Alien 3. Uh, and I remember me and Luke watched it two or three times because we were I was trying to work out uh, how he achieved it. Luke was um, your DOP? Yeah, it was the DOP, yeah. Um, now, uh, you know, camera extraordinaire. And uh, we will get him on the show. He's just a, he's a hard man to, he's a hard man to, to lock down. But, but yeah, so that was, that was certainly my experience with it. And a bit like you, Matt, massive anticipation, uh, as Aliens was such a kind of formative film for me. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, Aliens really did hit the, you know, hit the right note. So, so this would have been a, would have been a hard one for audiences, I think, to take. And I think, I don't know if you guys have been, you know, been looking back at any, any of the critical responses and certainly the audience uh, responses to the film, but it wasn't aliens. That's for sure. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, I look, I'm looking forward to kind of discussing around the film and maybe, you know, where the studio thinking was and where the, uh, where the vision was as far as how to, uh, how to kind of add to, to the IP, which is obviously something nowadays, which is, is kind of common practice. You know, the, how many franchises are out there that kind of are always looking to replicate success. And this film is definitely not a replica, is it? I mean, that's for sure. Um, so yeah. You've uh, unlocked look- a memory in me, Gally, watching this with you at uni. I completely forgot. So I remember discussing the low angles with you. Leading up to Dark Morning. Yeah, Dark Morning. Uh, don't forget, Patrick, when you say that title, it's got double meaning. Uh, it's <laughs> not just... A... <laughs> oh, Where we can so, we see We Dark were so morning. smart, weren't we? Oh, mate. No, no, not we, Patrick. Though. I'm going to take all the responsibility for that um, utter, <laughs> utter ridiculous idea of mine. Put it on our um, YouTube. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, there's a there's a part I tried of me to that load it onto YouTube. Yeah, it is a, it's a hard, it's it's a hard one. Yeah, I, I have a I have a copy of it, um, a soft copy. But um, yeah, maybe one day, listeners, I will be brave enough to put it out there. You never know; it might get like a like a Tommy Wiseau room uh, kind of <laughs> viral effect. So, Patrick, see, with this one, we mm-hmm. have a theatrical and a, and a and a very infamous assembly cut. So, I think before we get into it. I think we should just get the synopsis out of the way and then we will tackle Alien 3. So please, story time with Patrick. Can you give uh, the audience and us a plot summary of Alien 3? Directly after the escape in Aliens, Ripley and her surrogate family are in cryosleep, blissfully unaware of an unwanted passenger. The EEV crash lands on Fury 161. Newt, Hicks, and Bishop sadly perish upon impact. Lice-ridden Fury, or Furina, is inhibited entirely by reformed custodians with shaved heads who have found religion at the arse end of the totem pole. Upon seeing a familiar stain, Ripley asks for an autopsy on Newt for peace of mind, but no alien embryo is found. Unbeknownst to everyone... The unwanted passenger, a nightmare facehugger, has secreted a queen in Ripley and a murderous eight-foot quadrupedal alien runner in Spike the Dog, who bursts free in the facility's tunnels and ducts. Ripley repeatedly clashes with Top Brass, the prickly sexist jailer boss, Mr. Andrews, and embarks upon a brief clandestine tryst with the erudite former morphine addict and current doctor, Mr. Clemens. With the inmates getting picked off one by one, the frantic and stable Golic appears to be the number one suspect who develops a kinship with the dragon. In an effort to defeat the Xenomorph, 
Ripley strikes up an unlikely reluctant friendship with former murderer and rapist of women turned inspirational leader Dylan and his God Squad, along with 85, an assistant to the now-deceased Andrews and the acidic last man standing Morse. But ensnaring this dragon proves tricky. As the prisoners hold no weapons to speak of, the band of survivors must utilise the molten-lead moulding facility and its sprinkler system to shatter the beast to bits. To the dismay of Bishop's creator and a wailing Yutani medivac team of scientists and commandos who want the xenomorph for bioweapons division, Ripley takes a suicidal dive, clutching the emerging creature she's known for so long to her breast, and they plummet to their deaths in Fury's fiery foundry. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Patrick. And, uh, and just for our listeners, a bit of context. That was the theatrical version plot summary uh, we will as we go through the episode uh, kind of uh, we've got a section on the assembly cut versus the theatrical and the differences but essentially it's a good what a good 30 minutes additional uh, material in the assembly cut i think the work print is two hours 25 and the theatrical is one hour 54 just to avoid any kind of confusion the assembly cut is not david fincher's director's cut and uh, it's quite telling as well if you've uh, got the quadrilogy uh, box set, whether on DVD or Blu-ray, that David Fincher is the one out of the four that uh, does not give you a little hi. I'm David Fincher. Um, <laughs> this is uh, this is Alien Three. He is uh, he's completely uh, he's completely uh, removed himself from uh, from any any additional material uh, provided to the quadrilogy. The assembly cut has been put together by the director of the making ofs for the quadrilogy, and he sought Fincher's uh, approval, and he used storyboards and notes, etc., to put together what he believed was Fincher's uh, vision. This one feels like a real departure from Aliens. So my question to you guys is, is there another way that you can start this story? Because there was clearly huge controversy. There's still to this day. I went on Letterboxd, actually, uh, before we started recording, just to see what the the general consensus in the last 12 months is of people that have watched Alien 3. They keep bringing up Newton Hicks. You're such good friends with the basement dwellers, aren't you, Gally? Giving them a shout-out every week. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, the thing is, this uh, this one isn't just reserved for the basement dwellers. I think, um, you know, I, I don't know about you, Matt. I was shocked and appalled <laughs> but oh, wow. it, I, I got over it <laughs> yeah. very quickly. It, it was, it was not appalled because I was 10 years old, or 11 years old, but I was shocked by the fact that they were just wiped out and the images of a, just a child being killed. You can equate it to Jaws. Mm. There's a lot of things I'm always equating to Jaws, but this film was written as it was kind of being shot. So you can, you can, and there's a creature in it that how much do you show? And you can equate a, a lot of things to Jaws here, but, um, those initial scenes of the, uh, of I think you see like half of the bottom row of teeth of Michael Bean. Yeah, and it's like he's my favorite <laughs> colonial marine. Yeah. You've wiped him out, and uh, and then killing the little girl is just uh, it's a really bold, bold. Well, move. it's normally and, it's, it's normally up there with you know the dog never bites it, and nor do the kids. No, uh, but I guess Fincher never got that memo. There's a thing where uh, James Cameron said it was a slap in the face. That was his quote. Um, and then there's this other stuff about the early days of the internet. People were picking apart um, versions of the script and voicing their opinions about the film very quickly. And uh, the, the other thing, I think this killing them off gets a lot of flack because um, 
it, it was uh, it was a bold move, but, but it el- eliminated characters that people really loved. So um, as a kid, I don't I don't remember having that much of an issue with it. I was shocked, but I accepted the new the new story and kind of went went along with it. Really, do you think um, that's that's just about how we used to watch things, right? As as kids, like if you're sort of ten, eleven, you're not second guessing the creative process. I'm, in, I'm not sure uh, I even in, understood you know, that I'm just... watching a film, even though I was yeah. eleven. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I can suspend my disbelief now. So back then, I think this is real. Like this is really happening. You know, Hicks is dead, and Newt is dead, mm. and you're mm. taking on this really dark journey. I think I just accepted it. I think I had the same, Matt. When I was watching it, I was like, "Whoa, okay." Um, like it's just Ripley, and I I think at the time right over Hicks, I was more upset about Bishop not being mm-hmm. uh, not being functioning. Um, but I I just only saw it as a kick off the story rather than a completely creative uh decision to go in another direction. And it's it's funny how you can read it now compared to just like an innocent reading of a film and and going along for the ride when when you're younger. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I find it fascinating because um. It's, it's, it's more for a wider point, but we've obviously in recent times seen, um, sort of fan fury and, uh, and also I think as well as we've come into a kind of, uh, the era of streaming and films that almost feel like they are, uh, they are at the behest of the algorithm that this is so shocking that it kind of makes me always stand by the side of, fans should never be the author of the thing that they love, you know, because what would the alternative have been? Alien 3 with Hicks, Ripley, Newt with a gun, more aliens. Like, I just, I just, do you really want to see that version? I personally think that that would have just ended up being quite, quite rote and probably would have, I mean, people attribute this to killing the series, uh, the Alien 3 vision that they go with, but I think... It would have just been diminishing returns, surely, if you just had more aliens, more guns, and everyone's, you know. The I film just... is designed to kill it off. Um, Ripley and, and Sigourney Weaver wanted the character to be killed, and everyone thought this would be the last one. It would be a trilogy. I, I, we always thought the Alien trilogy. It's like we weren't expecting Resurrection to even come around, and we thought it was a closed loop, and not not to go too far into conclusions and things but as far as the, those three films alien aliens and alien 3 i think it works quite well as an arc and i don't mind that it gets darker at the end and it's quite reflective of the first fincher has commented on uh he, he said to terry rawlings while they were working together the original editor that came back for this one um who he slagged off quite a lot in, in the alien one so maybe we can wax his car on this one but uh he said that ridley scott was Fincher's hero, not James Cameron, and and I don't think that, that Cameron even figured in in uh, Fincher's plans for this one. It was all about emulating the original, and it's it's this very neat bookend that that Alien trilogy. So I appreciate it within that structure of three. I, I think I think it's a very early example of, of Fincher's kind of nihilistic approach to telling a story as well. Like that image of Newt uh, having drowned is really haunting, and that's at the very beginning of the film. It's the autopsy oh, went on much longer as well. They designed a very intricate, um, mm. um, I guess it's a doll, uh, but they had layers of skin and bone wow. and they would carve away at it and it, it made people sick in the in the test screening and they cut it right back. 
but it's it's pretty disturbing as as is in in either cut. What they have is the you know the use of uh, quick cuts and the sound design really the implement you know, yeah the, the, and Cle- and Clement's tools. wiping the blood on and the the cr- cracking the, the chest is awful, yeah, yeah. I, I think that that does mm. that has you know way more impact than than mm-hmm. kind of grossing us out and I think I think Finch should probably learn quite a bit from Alien Three and about what yeah. what you can and can't use because I think he employs it wonderfully in Seven, which is again uh, one of those wonderful things in Seven is that you actually never get to see the murders you only see the aftermath which mm. again i think he probably took from from alien 3 the the one thing that i i kept uh, button heads with is where was the alien in the lexicon of pop culture and actually i remember because when the second one came out my mum and dad because i obviously loved the film i i had a salaku i had the figures i had i had all of it so the alien had lost its power, I think. And I think Fincher recognized that as well as the studio. And one of the things that, that a, a, a kind of continuation of Hicks, Ripley and Newt would have done is that they would have just ended up being further cannon fodder. The one thing you can give Alien 3, whether or not it's scary or what works for you, is they try and empower the creature again by it's mm-hmm. one, they, they don't have like pulse rifles and grenades and all these kind of things. Um, and because in pop culture, you know, we know now, but the alien is, is kind of, everyone knows it. It's, it's, it's come out from the darkness and into the light. So, um, this was a way of trying to bring it back, I guess. I, I was thinking about that. This is probably something that would be mentioned a little later on when we get into the kind of the meat of the story. But when you say that the, the reputation of the creature and you've got this, um, it's, it's so mythologized within the first film that it's just, it could be anywhere. It could be everywhere. It is the shadows itself. It's the perfect killing machine. And then by the second one, what I'd probably not really even thought about when we watched Aliens, but now looking at this one, um, is that when you have sequences like the, um, the, the xenomorphs climbing through the ceiling ducts and they're being cut down by machine guns. And I'd not really thought about that, that like, what you have is, you know, this, this creature, which has been built up to be, you know, the ultimate killing machine. It's unkillable. It's got acid for blood, but they would like chopping them down by, by the numbers. And they, they only really get overwhelmed by, um, by sheer, well, like that, that they're outnumbered rather than kind of, uh, defeated. And right. really annoyed with Cameron because he'd, in their eyes, he'd weakened the, this perfect organism, this, this creature that they adored. And they are just getting cut down. You're, you're yeah. exactly right. So it, it did need to be brought back up. But at the same time, going aliens, the queen, like the legacy of the creatures embodied there. Well, that's what he, that's what he does, doesn't he? He doubles down and creates a bigger badder. But, but then when you come to alien three, mm. how would you top that? I don't think you do. And I think they were wise to say we could do another aliens, another action led sci-fi, but it's just going to end up feeling a little bit like, well, we've already seen yeah. this. And, and interestingly, legend and not yet friend of the show, but probably soon to be when I reach out to him, you know, Rennie Harlan was originally attached to, to, to direct Alien 3 <laughs> and, uh, in the, in the making ofs. And we'll try and, you know, limit the, the kind of the information from the making ofs because they really are worth watching as a standalone. And we could have a, an entire episode about the production woes of Alien 3. But one of the, the fascinating things is he's obviously seen now as a bit of a schlock, you know, gun for hire. But even Rennie Harlan in 91, when he was in the production process of this, this film just went, well, if you just have more guns, more corridors, then 
there's nothing creative and nothing that I can really do that's going to be anything different than what James Cameron did. So he walked and I think he went on to make, uh, did he, because it was 90s, did he Die Hard 2, Die yeah. Harder, which obviously... I think he probably would have... Or did he do that, that would 1990, oh. I don't know. Potentially that would have, I guess because the the pre-production on this was, was so long and so tortuous and um, so many different scripts kind of got bandied around. It's, we were saying that it's, it's, um, there have been other times where we said we don't want to rewrite films that already exist because it, you kind of, you can always second guess everything. You can always create another version of a thing. Like you were saying, you know, fans shouldn't really be the authors, but in a case like this where you had a release date, and a bunch of creatives just throwing drafts yeah. at the wall just to see what sticks. It's um, it's kind of fascinating to to sort of try and fathom out who is the kind of main guiding hand behind this. Like who is the one who decided that uh, uh, Newt and Hicks are dead immediately? And then the question is who decided that it was going to be that brutal? Mm. Like because it didn't need to be. There it are many ways to, to handle so it. Kind of, this is very Fincher. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, well, uh, there was also another hand. So it goes from Rennie Harlan to um, uh, uh, a New Zealand director called Vincent Ward. And he had a very specific vision. And again, people have kind of theorized. I personally think it's a little bit dumb, but he had a vision of a wooden planet, which, uh, which had its own, um, its own orbit. Again, it stretched. It stretched, stretched it for me, but the idea was that they were monks and you can kind of see the similarities where from an original script, we go from monks to prisoners, but they've all got shaved heads and they've all got, um, they've all found religion at the arse end of space. But he, he then got fired because I think the studio realized we are never going to make any money back. Uh, if we go down this route, which is obviously, it's a great thing. There was an amazing quote that I saw somewhere in, in one of the various notes I read. It was one of these kind of retrospective articles and they, um, they kind of dismissed Vincent Ward's work on it by just saying, um, uh, they, they parted ways after producers were never given an adequate answer as to why they were on a wooden planet. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite interesting. I was always drawn to that one. Uh, the wooden planet or satellite, somebody said, mm. had, uh, had this furnace in, in its bowels and, uh, that was powered by Lucifer. And well, I didn't mean to be so dismissive, Matt. I didn't realize you were one of the, the stands for the wooden yeah. planet. Sorry well, about no, that. I, I was always um, intrigued by the idea. And and it's, sometimes when you hear an idea like that, you think, oh, that would be cool. But if it was Conceptually, flipped, it might be. Yeah, if, if it was flipped, like if Alien 3 was monks on a wooden planet, we'd be like, oh, it should have been prisoners. They should have been on a prison mm-hmm. planet. And, and we, yeah. we would flip it that way. And they should have been convicts. So I think, I don't know if it was budgetary or what, but uh, it was an amalgam of different scripts and they ended up altering it. But you can see exactly where the religion uh, carried over into the, mm-hmm. the final film. Yeah, yeah. And also in the production design, there's a lot of uh, gothic imagery and um, little flourishes. You know, there's some stained glass windows just hiding out in the background in this very futuristic world. It's it's kind of reminding you of almost a medieval yeah. medieval the, the times. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. There's a deep, there's a deep cut from Cable Guy. Sorry, especially uh, Andrew's office. <laughs> I think that's where it's most prominent. In him as the leader, I think there's definitely a follow-on. From, Did from you that spot scene. the little duck that, on the desk that's sipping? Ten, alien, yeah. Mm. Nice little touch. 
we're in ninety. We're in the early nineties. So as far as franchises, um, obviously they they've always existed, but they they weren't uh, commodified as they are now. I mean, Christ, if uh, if the Alien series had started in two thousand, we'd be up to ten with the, with the Fast series as well. You know that that that's definitely what would have happened. But back then, this would have been seen as 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 a big opportunity for Fox to to land on an IP that they know. They're going to get bums on seats for. But the one thing I will say is they could have, as I said, easily gone down the route of, well, just, just do more James Cameron shit, will you? You know, the <laughs> fact is that when they did commission it and they greenlit the story as, as whatever story they did initially have, there was clearly a, a want to, to try and go in a different direction. Now, whether that's Sigourney because she's now got a bit more clout. I think that's that probably is something to do with that. But also, I think the producers, uh, is it Gilroy and... Um, uh, it was oh, Guyler and, and Hill. Guyler and, and Hill. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, I think, the, there I, is th- a... I think they recognized that they, that they needed to do something different. Otherwise, they all end up just being a bit of a damp squib. Before Sigourney Weaver had, had attached herself to it, Guyler and Hill and Gordon Carroll, I think is his name, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the third, yeah, yeah. the third producer uh, were approached by the head of Fox, and basically they were told this is going to happen, so you need to start knocking up drafts for it. And <laughs> um, there's a uh, an audio book which got released. Um, I haven't heard it yet, but um, starring Lance Henriksen and Michael Bean, mm. and they are performing the draft created by William Gibson. Add to shopping cart. Let's get that and yeah. the 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 legendary kind of cyberpunk author who who knocked up a draft of it with without Sigourney Weaver and um there's I think a lot more in the kind of internecine Wayland Utani kind of uh, uh uh duplicity of the company and stuff in, involved in that draft. I've not heard it yet, but um he, he also I explains think it's the egg. Um uh, the, the okay. egg is inside Bishop's intestines uh within the hypersleep <laughs> pod. Um, right. without laying an egg, the queen infects him with a xenovirus, which sounds a bit Resident Evil and Ooh. rubbish, but, wow. uh, so I don't that's like that explanation either, but that's the Gibson the... Take. Did they not find the egg though? Because it's on the Salako and they're on the EEV. Is that the idea? Uh, this is the earlier, uh, and where did they, where's the facehugger go? Right. If they, they impregnate and just die and they didn't, oh, fucking hell. You've, you've dragged they me down to the basement, up. Matt. Yeah. He he's he's where the ox is. That's yes. the ox version, though. In the theatrical, is more what I'm referring to. Let's let's tackle this then. So we'll go for preferences, strengths, weaknesses. So the theatrical version versus the assembly cut. Um, certainly, when it comes down to the egg, the gest, the animal that it uh, gestates in. Um, in the theatrical, it's a dog. It's Spike. You know, who would do this to a dog? Um, but in the, in the assembly, it's an ox. And, and one of the things that you can attribute to Alien 3 is that, that it extends the mythology of the alien creature, that it takes the qualities of its host. I'm not sure an ox is super fast, but it is four legged. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's yeah. one thing that you can go with. But I, but cause I know I read in, uh, Fincher's, uh, storyboard notes that he wanted the, uh, he wanted the alien to be like fast like a jaguar, which is, but the ox fed into the idea that the, the planet was, you know, as I say, sort of medieval. And it's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not some futuristic world where they've got loads of gadgets I and mean, they don't even have any ice cream. So, so that was, that was why they had the ox is because it, the ox obviously plowed the land and, yeah. and whatever, whatever they could get in the, in the summer months. 
but which ones we bring? Well. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we turn it into a stew. Um, you know, a couple of bones, some veg. You <laughs> baby, you got a stew going. <laughs> well, I, I had no idea about the ox early on because I I saw the theatrical and that's all I saw for for the longest yeah, yeah, time. So too. we all we called it the dog burster, and it was always a dog burster, and that's it. But um, on one of the documentaries, it was interesting. Non other commentary. None of the effects team knew why it was changed from an ox to a dog, but it may have had something to do with them trying to use a whippet. They were going to put makeup on a real dog on a whippet because it's skinny. You can add things to it and it won't look massive. Uh, but it was a, the tests were a complete failure and the dog just kind of wandered around with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, you're, you're into you're into Tremors 2 Aftershocks territory if you're doing that so I think that was the right choice I, I also think that the Ox were shot very early on like before I think I think it was like a second unit thing the producer wanted wasn't really a Fincher thing anyway and to try and retrofit the, the film to, to an Ox burster compared to the Dog burster just didn't really work well, it might have also fed into just cutting the, the length of the film down because the, we see shots of the ox and we see Clements, you know, even the way that Ripley's body is, uh, is found in the theatrical, it's just crashed EV Ripley being carried in. But we, we have a, just a little bit more time with, with Clements as he, as he walks the land. And then Matt, what are your, I think it's, you know, not favorite scenes, but favorite shot, um, music, visuals. Uh, all coming together with Clements running towards the beach and we see Ripley's body, you know, blackened and filled with, uh, filled with bugs. It's, uh, it's a really kind of shocking way to start the film. I was, um, because I'm not as familiar with the, the theatrical, I, I've actually only seen the, the assembly cut this oh, week right. for, for this. And then, uh, I'd seen the assembly cut previously and then I watched the theatrical, uh, literally just watched the, a breakdown of the differences between the two rather than the entire film, which I'm not sure I really should have. But um, what's what's really interesting is that that's all my favorite stuff. I, mm-hmm. ca- I can't imagine this film without that atmospheric opener of the, you know, the, the, the really blackened sand on the, on the beach and the kind of the yeah. really oppressive, like the wind howling. And it's mm-hmm. such a, an incredible indelible, uh, indelible image of him running with the big coat flapping behind us. What, that's great. It's, it's a real shame to lose the exteriors and the theatrical. Real shame. And to see the, the ox and, and like you said, it, it does make it make sense. Like it's, uh, I understand the ecosystem of this planet a lot better if they are, you know, yeomen plowing the land with whatever they, I, I don't understand why there would be a pet dog on a, a foundry turned prison planet. Whereas I do totally understand why you'd have. The, the, the size is, is, uh... It makes more sense because when it comes out of the dog, it, it's basically the size of the dog. Um, but when it comes out of the, the ox, mm, the, yeah, the, yeah. the scale makes more sense. Uh, the, my other reference for that was, uh, Patrick talked on, uh, Jesse James about books, books you had when you were little, um, about cowboys and, and things. And I, I had, uh, some Greek myth books and oh, cool. the one that I always returned to was Theseus and the Minotaur. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of that in Alien Three, right? Uh, yeah. You can first of all you can equate the, the Minotaur half bull half man to to the ox more more than the dog, uh, you know, um, eating children. I guess the uh, the prisoners are substituted for that. Um, the idea of the oxen being uh, castrated was another thing I found. 
to, to make them easier to control. And I thought maybe that tied into something with the rapists and the double Y chromosome stuff. Ah, those double Ys. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really explored, but, um, the sausage, you know, the, tu- the, the tunnels and the labyrinth and, uh, you know, you have to go in there and it was all, um, that was something that I loved and, uh, that's cool. It, it, it all fit, fit very nicely for me, particularly as a kid. I, I really liked, liked that aspect. Well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's just get into it then. So Ripley lands, we were introduced to Clements and then we have, we have this, as you say, Devlin, this kind of mini ecosystem, this prison planet and, they're all, they've all got shaved heads. And I guess that feeds into them all being sort of monk-like and they find a good reason for it, which is obviously lice and you, you need to tend to your private parts as well. Uh, luckily we don't see any, any shots of that. Um, but what do we, what do we think then? Because this is so different. It's so oppressive. But I, I am, I'm all for it. I really like that opening shot with, uh, with Andrews and, uh, you know, rumor control. These are the facts. I, I am immediately bought into it. And also it feels like, you know, with Neil and I, it's actually, I said with Neil and I, because obviously we've got Ralph Brown and uh, Paul McGann, but this is, this is like the most extreme version of porridge you've ever seen. Like it really <laughs> is. Like it's just these Brits in, in a planet. And because I'm British, clearly I'm not bothered. I can imagine an American audience are like, what, why do they all sound like fucking like manic? like crazies but they've all got Is these Ripley Ronnie Barker? I think yeah. so yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> what are our thoughts about um this kind of these these opening scenes and where Ripley has found herself in because this is you know you talked about Vincent Ward's vi- vision of a wooden planet with Lucifer's fire in the in the back well this is basically purgatory for Ripley isn't it um in a roundabout way and in amongst oh. the worst of the worst Oh, Gally, you've, you've, you've set me off. I've got a lazy purgatory theory. Uh, you know, there's always a purgatory theory about, um, uh, Lost was the, the big one where everyone said, Oh, they're in purgatory. They're between, between life and death and, and heaven and hell. And, uh, you, you can kind of apply it to most things, but there's, there's not a bad one here. It was, um, like everyone has to do the right thing in this film to kind of progress. And in, in, first of all, in Roman Catholic doctrine, Purgatory is a place or state of suffering inhabited by the souls of sinners who are making amends, paying reparations for their sins before they get to go to heaven or not. It's like a temporary suffering or torment. And then the adjective uh, is uh, a cleansing or a purification. So, and, and then there's a lot of stuff about fire in purgatory and that all fits into the visuals of, of this one, like a pure, uh, purgatorial fire that cleanses you um uh, similar to hell or hades and i don't know how much of this is a hangover from the monks and all that stuff but it's it's there's a cool thing that happened with the gestation of this one where this religious stuff and the prison stuff collided and you you get all the good stuff i think from those earlier drafts Uh, it's kind of a hangover of it so you've got a conflict um with the prisoners you've got Instead of a bunch of do-gooders in robes, which I think would have been, you know, robed sissies, as uh, Simon Phoenix would say, on a, on a wooden planet. <laughs> but now you've got these criminals and there's more of a, a, a dramatic conflict there between them. Uh, so I think there's, there's a tie yeah. into purgatory some, somewhere. 
Yeah. And and also, let's not forget that this prison is not inhabited by the incumbents of Shawshank. You know, these are the worst of the worst. They are not, you know, nice prisoners. I think, um, I think, uh, Andrew says, you know, rapists, murderers. And, mm. and then they keep, they keep harping on about this double Y chromosome, which I had to do some Googling. And yeah. I, I think it was a, it was a scientific theory. It's now been debunked, but it was the idea is that if you double Y, then uh, you're more susceptible to violent uh, crimes, especially against women. Um, hence, you know, Ripley again being kind of thrown into the midst of the worst of the worst. You know, this couldn't have been a worse situation for Ripley to have landed in. That's where I read the, the opening of this. It's a very deliberate uh, uh, setting for Ripley and for the theme of the film. You know, the, the alien and aliens, they both deal in body horror. We're both dealing all the films kind of deal with rape. I think this one more so because from the body horror elements, it, she's introduced to an environment where she's being judged for who she is and who purely on her body and her sex. Um, it, and having no way to change that perception of herself, she's reduced publicly by everyone in that environment, especially Andrews, who is the leader who, who is, is quite sexist and, uh, really resents her there, whether from a power play point of view or because she's just a woman. And being in that environment, um, I think there's a really strong statement there about women in, in society at the time. And, you know, Angie's calls her a good girl. It's, it's not a pleasant place. And it's then the setting is for Ripley to, to come out of that. Um, as we go on, I've got more on this as we go on. If I can project the, plot a bit galley no i do it go 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 because g- going on she's in the last few films there's the setting of you know like there's male rape and there's the unwanted pregnancy here but this is the for, for ripley this is the first time there is an unwanted pregnancy for herself it's always usually been quite surrogate for her especially mm-hmm. in the second one with newt and hicks so to speak to have the happy family but here she has a very positive relationship with Clemens and she's, it's kind of a little love story between them. And that relationship's literally destroyed by her raper, by, by the person who's wronged her. And she has to live with this thing inside of her while the relationship's destroyed. It's destroyed Clemens and she has to survive and and use that and, and to excel herself in, as a woman does through the problems of uh, uh, problems, the limitations maybe, or the illness, the morning sickness and everything that you can have from a pregnancy and just get, get on with it, get on with, mm. with a life and uh, propel herself that way. And in being the outcast, you know, she, well, they, they all end up trusting her in the end. There is that mm. theme as well from the other ones that they don't want to believe her. You know, they don't believe her in aliens. They're going with guns anyway. They think they're good enough with the guns to defeat the alien, but alien Ripley knows more. It's one of that, Patrick, that's one of the things that I really enjoy about this, this film is Ripley's learned from those previous experiences. So she, I think it's the, she knows, I can't say, there's an alien. Like when she says, uh, we need to do an autopsy, she doesn't yeah. say oh, there's an alien. She's mm-hmm. like, it's cholera. Cause she's just, she yeah. realizes immediately that if she starts going down the alien route, we're going to get another Cassandra moment where like, uh, it could, you're right. Superintendent Andrews doesn't believe her, but Clements, he, he's, he's somehow he's, he's trusting of what she says, mm-hmm. um, whether that's just because of an initial attraction and he sees her as somebody who he can relate to because clearly. He's got enough, I think he's affectionate of the prisoners, 
but they're not on his wavelength and he clearly can't stand the the hierarchy with Andrews mm-hmm. and him having such a fractious relationship. But I, I like the fact that Ripley's all business in this one. She knows that, you know, literally she's been through this. She, this is not her first rodeo. So I will not go down the route of saying there is a xenomorph with acid for blood yeah. until I have to. Do, do you think though that a Ripley in aliens w- would wait that long? Or is it because she's learned from those actions that? Oh, it's because she's le- absolutely because she's learned. She's learned. She's seen, oh, yeah. she's seen the acids like Mark. Part of me did think like another version of Ripley, which was quite believable to me, would report this straight away and seek action to, uh, evacuate, get, get out of there and. But I guess yeah. she's, she's already now aware that, you know, the company has tried to kill her twice, not tried to kill her, but has been fine with her dying twice. So there's, there's no one to report it to. I think, um, there's such a like resignation to her in this film. She's, she's, uh, there are moments, I mean, even before she realizes that she is essentially doomed, she seems to be basically accepting of, of death. Like she's, there are, there are moments of just complete, uh, um, uh, acceptance of it. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's weird to think the timeline of the films versus the timeline of when the films were made, that she's so kind of wearied and, and battle hardened. But, um, in terms of actual story amounts of time that have elapsed between the first and second films, we don't know how long it is, but it's, it's potentially a few months, maybe a year. And between the second film and the third film, it's immediate. She was for her at least because she's been in hypersleep. So as far as she's aware, when she crash lands, she's essentially just managed to escape from uh from the from the colony so um i think that I goes think some way the... as well for a woman surviving in a, a literal man's world and yeah well uh, I, I love the look the of way... her in this one that there's a real there's a transformation in many ways the haircut is obvi- the obvious thing but there's the one bloodshot red eye that mm. i love um, yeah. and the scar above it which is yeah cool. uh she it's an extension of one and two um but in like a full metal jacket way on this planet they're they're stripped of their you know they're, they're made made to be a kind of a uniform there's a uniform look to them all and she's stripped of her femininity uh but she still manages to to take charge and there's some stuff like patrick you mentioned the the stuff with clemens um uh, th- there's a moment there where her breasts are kind of more prominent and slightly more visible and that's when she kind of becomes the the woman again i guess uh, and she's allowed that moment of femininity. And I like how she controls that relationship with Clemens. She's smart enough to see that he's a good guy and uh, he's not going to make an advance on her. So she just controls the situation and gets the intimacy that she needs. Um, and, but the whole thing as, as a kid, I remember being very disturbed by it because I, I love Ripley. And when she starts coughing and saying she's got a sore throat and it's like, Oh God, like here, here we go. She's doomed. This it's an awful foreboding thing over the whole, the whole thing. She just gets it worse every time, you know? Well, Matt, I'm going to, I'm going to pick up on, on what you were saying. Cause ironically, you're right that she's stripped of her femininity, but actually I would say that this is probably Ripley at her most sexualized in a, in a, in a roundabout way. If you take away the last so, you know, the final part of the original alien where she's in the seventies pants. Um, you know, we see her showering and I just love how direct and blunt she is with Clemens. I think what you, what you were touching upon, Devlin, 
was that you know she is battle hardened she's weary and she's resigned to to a fate but i also think that she's no longer able to kind of give herself to others so which it's not just because they're prisoners and they've done horrible things i think ripley is now so about business that she's like with with clements it's reciprocal isn't it like they mm-hmm. they clearly have affection for each other, but they talk about it in such a direct way, and they're both kind of withholding information. But it's not like her and Hicks, where there was a kind of flirtation. It's mm-hmm. it's matter of fact, and I yeah. don't think I don't think Ripley's able to kind of be. Comp- she's compassionate for others. She still is, but she's now all about stopping this thing from ever getting into the grasp of the corporation. And she doesn't, she's not yeah. really interested in, in if you die, you die. I think, um, near the end when they're doing the speechifying and she's just like, you know, I think Dylan says it like it's how you check out. They aren't, they're not, they're under no illusions that any, you know, most of them are going to die. Yeah. It's that moment with Aaron as well when she's like, this is what we have to do. And Aaron. Yeah, it's like I've got a wife, I've got a kid. It's like, yeah. don't care. Do, but Ripley I do also, like, I like the way Ripley's sexuality as well, Gally, in a very poignant way, in a room full of all these convicts in the uh, in the cafeteria, and with Dylan, who says, yeah. "I'm a raper of women and I'm a murderer," and she stands the ground and sits there, knowing that her presence and that temptation. Ah, it's it's brilliant, and yeah. that that goes a long way to to that power of Ripley. And mm-hmm. her mindset there that is taking control of the situation. I just wanted to um, say thanks for what you said at the funeral. Was, uh, my friends would have appreciated. Yeah, well, you don't want to know me, lady. I'm a murderer and rapist of women. just a statement of principle, nothing personal. You see, we've, we've got a good place to wait here. And until now, no temptation. I thought the, um, the, when you were saying the double white chromo thing of, you know, having, essentially it, if, if you get into like proper bullshit pop kind of, uh, biology, it's basically that it's, it's male doubled. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's too, so I think the, the way they, um, they've always had interesting takes on gender issues throughout all of these films, but this one is so kind of overt and it's basically like you have every type of character could represent the kind of, some of the worst aspects of male dominated society. So you've got the low level grunts who are just like uh, in, in the scene where the, where the two guys are punching, well, the one guy's punching the ox, they're just almost cartoonishly, uh, uh, virulently misogynistic and, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and violent and, um, completely uncontrolled when it comes to taking what they want from women. You have, uh, uh, Andrews is like 
incompetence and somebody who's been elevated above their own station for no for no real reason um uh who's the um sorry i've, I've uh, i need to scroll through the cast list because i lose the names often sorry andrews what i meant is uh andrews is just like lazy incompetence just you know mm. drifting along and then you've got 85 who is like rank stupidity who's still allowed to have uh um an amount of authority and then dylan you could say represents like almost like religious like an uh, an aggressive it's like a zealot, zealotry isn't he? or like yes. yeah, yeah. And, and how you end up with um essentially like a, a kind of religious dictatorship he only rules by uh fear fear of uh, god and fear of his own uh violence he's clearly physically stronger than than the majority of the other people hmm. well he used that power over them as well i think does dylan because it's um I imagine they don't really want to fight back against him because they know he's right, and that's what the penance is. Yeah, about there. yeah. Well, there's there's also the idea of, of a kind of blind faith, and that runs not only to the the, the kind of the pseudo religion that they've kind of apocalyptic religion that they've uh, they've created for themselves, but it's the what, same. What do faith. they call it? They call it's it. The, um, it's, oh, I think um, apoc- I mean apocalyptic Christian fundamentalist variety. Listen, yeah. if you have, by the way, you know, just a sidebar on this one. If you have mounds of exposition, get Charles Dance. I mean, one oh, of yeah, the things yeah. that I absolutely adore, and we'll get into the characters, but I just thought I'd say it whilst it's fresh in my head, is if you have characters that need to espouse loads of dialogue and it's exposition, get the best actor you can because they can yeah. just sell it. And he does it uh, when he when he brings Ripley into this world. But what I was going to say is that it, it, it dovetails the blind faith in their religion is dovetailed in the blind faith that... Aaron and Superintendent Andrews have in the company. And obviously Ripley kind of cuts through the middle of it because she's neither religious nor has any faith in the, in the company. Right. So, so she's, she's, and then she's almost like some kind of, you know, fallen angel. God, look at me getting all into the religious allegory, <laughs> Matt. Get me in the basement. So there's a, there's a <laughs> very know. specific visual thing on religion though in it where, and I, I'm now trying to separate the, um, the two cuts, cuts. but when, the alien goes in the uh, toxic waste uh, room. There's some ah. slow motion. The the uh, sprinklers come down, and there's some quite religious type music mm. that, that's in the imagery mm. as well. Oh yeah, like an absolution and a cleansing, which is is quite. I think that that's a very deliberate uh, part of, of to um, back this all up, Gally. I think that's all in the extended, isn't it? With the, the Golic stuff and the yeah. toxic waste. Well, G- Golic, um, if we go on to Golic, he, he sees this as a higher power, a higher being, this alien, calls it a dragon, but then he call, does he call it marvelous or wonderful? Where, when it takes away, uh, he magnificence. Has an with it. Yeah. yeah, which is, which is, of course, uh, a more impressionable mind, um, who's taken to religion there, seeing something, um, I don't know, not of this earth and, and taking to it as well. It's all quite interesting. I got to the bottom of the accent, by the way, if anyone wants to know. It's on the commentary. Well, uh, Paul McGann's very Fincher good. Fincher told him to drop it, didn't he? Well, yeah, it was, uh, it was born out of, he was playing it American. Uh, but there's, there's this idea that he was like a serial killer. He was letting out, uh, that there's a bit in the extended where, uh, is it Morse frees him from his, ch- yeah, yeah, more, from more, him? yeah, yeah, Morse, Morse lets him cause he's, he, I think he uh, he's, he pities him, doesn't he, Morse? So. Yeah, and then Morse gets a whack on the head. He's not killed, right? And then and then uh, yeah. he kills another guy, cuts a guy's throat, and he lets the dragon or the alien out of the toxic waste um, disposal kind of area. So he sets it free again. 
Um, but he was, um, he was playing it like Charles Manson because they looked at him like a bit of a serial killer, the human threat. And, uh, they, they thought that it was too close for comfort. So they said, drop it and play it British. But why didn't they just ADR it a bit more and like make it yeah. a bit more, uh, even throughout? Mm, yeah. Uh, it was it's... another weird kind of lazy rushed approach. Like we've been praising it quite a lot, but there, there's a lot of negatives to this film and it, it, it feels rushed in places and unfinished. Um, and we're even talking about an unfinished cut that the director hasn't even approved. That's how unfinished it is. But yeah, there's, there's bits and bobs that, that really need some work, I think. Let's, let's go through it then, because I, I do think, and I remember one of the producers saying it, uh, about Charles Dance's character, um, that they, they felt like they wished he'd, uh, stuck around a bit longer. I am going to disagree because I think for maximum impact, Charles Dance is one of the, VR, one of the MVPs of the film. Um, and, and, and the reason being is he's got, he's only what, 50 minutes maybe? comes in and we we know so much about him without really ever knowing a great deal about him and it's one of those things where you hire a great actor like Charles Dance who can just give you through performance his entire backstory without then having to to delve it out but when he does you know one of the things you mentioned Matt about purgatory is that is atonement right that's a whole idea of it is that you atone for your sins and and he's obviously struggling with his past but but you know that he's got a checkered past even bef- long before he tells Ripley about what what happened to him and I, I just I think he's so strong in this and his his dynamic with Sigourney I'm sure they must have got on like a house on fire because they their chemistry is crackling on screen I, I think it's fantastic Actually, they, um, according to Ralph Bryan, they, they didn't get on well on set. Oh, <laughs> Did they not? What an even better actor than he is then. My God. <laughs> That's so it's, it's strange to see, um, Charles Dance in a role like this. You, I, I'm used to him projecting this kind of like stately menace. It's, it was yes. really, really bracing and really interesting to see him be so kind of, um, immediately, uh, like you say, he's still mysterious, but mysterious in a way that he draws you right in and you understand mm. immediately why, why Ripley would, would, uh, gravitate towards him so quickly. But that's, that's fascinating that they, uh, yeah. that they had friction. Who's the biggest star, maybe? Did you get to the bottom of what was, what was the issue? Well, Different y- uh, disciplines? There's a really, or... I'll send you the article. Ralph Brown wrote some kind of memoirs on set about his character being rewritten and being unhappy. It's a really excellent read. Um, and he said, Weaver had this, uh, I don't know whether it's demand or, or will, there was no stars in the film. She wanted to be the star. She didn't want a big name actor. And of course, Charles Dance is there. So she was very icy to him and st- stayed away and was quite rude to him mm. because for, for those reasons. A dance isn't a star though at this point. Yeah, but she recognized that he's an excellent actor and probably had a very mm. good role and was doing a very good job. And yeah. I think she was very intimidated by that. So she was very frosty on set, apparently. Oh, that's a shame. Well, yeah. it will, it, I tell you, however you get there, I suppose, because on screen, their scenes are electric. The, the, there's uh, when, in Dan, uh, Clemens at the very beginning. Is it, I love the reading of this and his delivery and his performance where he says, no, none of them have seen a woman in years. Neither have I for that matter. <laughs> and he ha- yeah. has that moment. It's Perfect. brilliant, brilliant setup to. 
and that so, moment is punctuated with where Fincher puts the camera, which is mm-hmm, in the locker yep. as he opens it. And obviously, you know, semiotics, it's just a wonderful <laughs> shot. I absolutely he, he's love probably it. my favorite thing in it. Um, like there's a subtle expressive stillness to him. He's very articulate and intelligent. And like we said before, cold and matter of fact. There's also a great arc. Like you, you took the words out of my mouth, Gally, when you said about how soon he, he leaves the movie. It's perfect because you, I'm, I'm kind of a proponent for, for dispatching of characters when their arc is complete. And he, he's learned to be a man again. He's learned to be human again through his contact, contact with Ripley. Um, it's, uh, I, you know, it, it felt, clinical and economical the way he was just ditched at that point it's kind of ruthless but in a film like this his job is done and yeah. it's very very effective to just get rid of him and also like dragging ripley through it even more that her potential lover the one person she has a connection with yeah it's it's, it's, a, it's another person that she's drawn close to that's been taken away and in a film that kills a 10 year old kid in the first couple of minutes i'm afraid clemens you are gone my man but it goes back to that theme I was saying about that her rapist ruining her relationship, ruining mm. her life. You know, and that that was all that imagery of that was what it was for me. Patrick, can I just go back to your Ralph Brown uh, written stories? Yeah. I don't suppose there's a bit where he goes to Sri Lanka uh, in order to find <laughs> a thousand brown M and M's to fill a brandy glass for Ozzy. Is it? Oh, is it in there? He was worried about going. He was asked to do it, but he was worried about. Being beaten to death by his own shoe. <laughs> and the shopkeeper I, I have... and his son is another story. <laughs> I have a Charles Dance quote about Fincher. Um, he said, I would jump off London Bridge for Fincher. He's a genius. I stand awestruck watching him work. Wow. wow. From Charles Dance, that is high praise. Yeah, brilliant. High, high praise indeed. Yeah. When was um, um, Last Action Hero? Was that a couple of years after this? It was the, the next year, 94, I think. 93. Yeah. 93, 93 yeah. yeah. I loved that. Oh, God, he's great. When you were saying that uh, Charles Dance's arc being complete, or rather Clemens's arc being complete, and then he gets dispatched in the film, and it's like it's brutal and it's swift and it makes a lot of sense in terms of characters. What I will say is that even though I think this is possibly uh, uh, My Sandwiches are coming out of the box just about now, which is that theoretically i totally understand why that's the case i also feel that the film as a viewing experience suffers wildly for it and i lose focus once he's gone because i don't feel like i have a strong enough connection because we've been given so much time with the two of them that it's i think it's it's possibly an accusation that gets lobbed at fincher a lot it's not maybe it's not even an an accusation so much as an observation which is that he has a, a a different approach to emotional attachment to films and uh, the, the, the material of films and the way the films react on audiences than maybe some other filmmakers do. He isn't sentimental, but he is able to infuse emotion into films. But there are other times when it just becomes kind of quite clinical and you become detached. And I think um, once we lose the central emotional thread, which is uh, Ripley and Clements coming together, it's not replaced with anything that I feel is strong enough to, to, to create a new kind of core to the film because we end up in a, a kind of a, a very confused chase narrative after that that stops and starts and never really kind of coalesces. Now that might be to do with like you were saying, Matt, this is essentially an unfinished film and also the version of it that I'm 
most familiar with is an unfinished film. It's a chopped together edit, but stuff like where, um, you know, trap is spending so much time trapping the alien in the, in the waste disposal unit to then release it in what, about three minutes of screen time straight after with, after, as soon as Golic escapes, he, he frees it again. So it's like, we've, we've gone through this whole big sequence and then we just unpick the thread and reset the film again. Uh, even though good, good work has been done. It's, it's as a, uh, as a, a narrative, it's, it loses coherence the further it goes in, I think. This is the point, Devlin, where the film, for me, takes a real dip. Um, I, I largely agree with you. I, I actually quite like Dylan. I, I don't mind their relationship wholly, but there's a, there's a scene in a cage, there's a cage bedroom type mm. thing. Really yeah. comes out of nowhere. Um, and there's an unnecessary tension in that scene about whether he's going to kill her then and there. And I never believe he's going to. And I just mm. feel like it's a waste of my time watching that bit. Because I I, has, I quite uh, like him him saving her from the three rapists, uh, Matt Callany Junior, um, and he has a very brief moment with him. He's like, "You okay?" And then he, I've got to re, you know, um, re-educate the brothers, which I <laughs> which I quite like. But there's a lot of time wasting for me thereafter, where Ripley goes looking for the alien and she pokes a fucking obvious pipe, which yeah. looks nothing like. I I don't understand that visual thing there really uh, Ripley's smarter than that she that's a pipe there anyway um and then I was very disappointed in her turning around then seeing the actual xenomorph and it cuts to black and then she goes and says oh he's not xenomorph's not going to kill me yeah well she knew I, that anyway because th- yeah she knew that, that anyway no, there's, there's, and no there's no new no development that. yeah there's, there's no relationship no between the xenomorph and her which would have been really interesting to develop that since the the moment where that famous image of the, the xenomorph um, drooling next to her face, and there's a lot. How about of... it tries to protect her, like we said about the, the the royal face hugger. It should be protecting the potential queen, and maybe the inmates managed to get Ripley away from it. Somehow. Oh, could you imagine and, and... if the xenomorph saved her from the rapist? Yes, I was going to say that's, oh. that's Patrick. We are, we are we are writing it as we speak because I wanted more conflict. I wanted some yeah. prisoners to turn against yeah. Ripley. The xenomorph attacks them. Oh, that would have been amazing. Shoot, shoots her a look, wink, off screen, boom. Because this animal's not protecting her from Clemens. It, it's just, that's just a... a <laughs> they, they go to the Winchester. <laughs> um, this animal's not protecting her from Clemens, and it doesn't even dispatch... Um, oh, bloody hell. Golic either in that scene. And it, there's a lot of nonsensical stuff going on for me in this next mm. 20, 30 minutes. But then I do start mm. to... Ah, oh, semi get the tension and enjoyment at the end because I'm invested in Ripley on a whole anyway. The, the whole discovery of, of the pregnancy, I'll call it, the, um, the unwanted alien inside her and all of that. Matt, I'm with you. I'm, I'm very worried about Ripley and what can happen and that almost inevitable demise until you realize what, what has to be done. Well, one of the, one of the things as well that you're pointing out, Patrick, which is, you could argue as a strength and a weakness of the film is the alien really is not the focus. Um, it's, it's, it's what the alien is, is forcing these characters to, to contemplate, to, 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 to try and, um, you know, how are they going to stop it? And, and all the, the montage stuff where we, we, we see her looking at ducks and, and all that. I, I'm in at that point, you know, I'm back into the film because I'm, I know that I've seen this before. And, and Finch is kind of tackling it a different way. And we're trying to see her 
think about ways in tackling the alien without weapons, without the other thing as well that they don't have is they don't have some nuclear device like in the first one with the ship and the self-destruction and in the second one, which is, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, sticks, uh, you know, they've got it all. Um, so, so that stuff I'm, I'm into, but you're right. There is a lot of, there's a lot of dead time that probably could have been either better served. And I think that's where the theatrical and assembly, there's probably a cut somewhere in the middle with those additions um, well, that we've just mentioned. This is where the theatrical does it a little bit better in that failed attempt to get him in the the, the toxic waste room to, to then propel him onto the... Now, what do we do? Rather than that being a successful, then stop, then rewrite it. But, I mean, who doesn't love a bit of POV alien chase cam at the end? Well, I'll tell you who doesn't. Um, Roger is Ebert. It- corner. we have um <laughs> he said uh it was the least exciting alien movie but in some ways the most interesting he praised the art direction the rust the mold and the despair uh, he said it lacked the high tension action of the end of the first and the entire second one uh, he said it was great to look at the chase scenes were uh, repetitious. And then Siskel chimed in with some nonsense about monsters in the house and uh, going round and round. And that didn't make any sense. But I'm kind of with Ebert on this one. Um, he, he praised it for the right reasons. And he, um, you know, chastised it for the for being rep- uh, repetitive as far as that those chase stuff and the POV. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I've got to I've got to agree with Roger on this one, too. Um, it's it's. The, the problem is, I think, um, listen, we haven't even really talked about the alien creature, but when it's a man in a suit, it, it's, I'm, I'm in. I think it works. I, I absolutely adore, um, the, uh, the prisoners with Golic when one of them gets his uh, jugular ripped off and the blood splatters on Golic's face and the music chimes in. Amazing. Is it Pete that gets the, the tongue through the head through the window? Yeah. It, it was her. It was yeah. her idea. Yeah. This. Yeah. It was. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, there's, you know, so all the practical stuff, I think, is abs- absolutely works. And, and you're right, uh, Matt, about, you know, it's it's the monster being unseen. The problem with the film is it's probably been made 12 to 18 months too early. Like, if you think about the ILM and the advancements that they got when in, we get to Jurassic Park, apply that to Alien 3, and I think all those special effects... Terminator may, 2 was may the same time. Good. Ah, but yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking about um, creature because in Terminator oh, Two we have a, a a morphing, sure, you know, bit of you know water or whatever. But I mean, that's that's extremely difficult to pull off, though. Like a, a reflective mm. surface with all these crazy angles, reflecting fire as well. Like the the fact mm. that they managed to pull that off in Terminator Two. That the problem is not so much like the the technology because we saw this a bit of this in uh, uh, in Species. We did a few years after this, which is that. It's just, it's poor integration. It's poor color matching. It's poor light matching. Mm-hmm. When, when it's scuttling across the ceiling, it looks just as bad as, uh, the creature at the end of species. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. I, just I think as it's bad, the, but... it's a compositing issue because the, they actually used a puppet. It mm. wasn't all CG. Um, the, the little rendered. rod puppet, right? With yeah, the, the rod puppets. The, and then it's the way yeah. they resize that and put it into the environment. They had like motion capture. Uh, not motion capture. What's the one where the camera moves, uh, in, in Rotos- the, the effects shots? It rotoscoped, is it? No, not rotoscoped. It, the uh, camera no, moves no. Motion, the same... motion control. 
motion, motion control, control yeah. an early mm. version of that. Yeah. So the the way the camera was moving on set was mimicked uh, in the effects process, placing the the, the creature within the the moving camera because Finch is not really locked off at, at any point. So it was the compositing of the creature that looks kind of lame. And I said earlier, like off air, that it looked too cute as well when it first kind of comes out. It, the, the design mm. of it is quite cool. It's uh, like Finch a sheet. Well, it makes, it makes a little sound as yeah. well. Like, yeah, little... it's too cutesy. But um, yeah. Fincher said he wanted a freight train meets a Jaguar. And again, that makes me go, oh, wow, amazing. But if you look back at the first and all the praise we gave the first one, it was that balletic, mm. unusual, sexual, mm. slow moving stuff that made it um, sinister. Not just this freight train running at you. You need a bit more... Well, I wonder yeah. if his vision would have been more, um, would have had more effect because, you know, you said your friend, a doctor, no less, uh, was, was scared. I- I've never been scared of this film. Never. It's never elicited, uh, even a jump scare out of me. And, and that is a failing on Fincher. But I, but I also, I'm not convinced necessarily that the film is really going for that anyway. You know, it's more of the oppressive tone and just the, I think, uh, Patrick, you described it as a, as a drama. That's exactly where I think it lives. It's, it's, it's a character piece, you know, for, for Ripley and how, you know, she's having to deal with all these kind of these issues and conflicts within herself and what the alien represents. But it's less about the monster in the house, as, uh, as Siskel might describe it, running around mm-hmm. the corridors. Um, and, and more about how Ripley's dealing with it. But, but the effects do harm the film because it, it takes away that potential threat of the one, the one creature with no weapons because it looks so bad that you, you, you can't, you can't suspend disbelief. Well, don't, don't get me wrong. When I said the POV stuff, I literally mean the POV stuff, which I do like. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets him away from the problems of the, the visual effects that aren't working at the time. And, um, whether he took it a bit from Raimi uh, and Evil Dead or, mm, yeah, you know, yeah. but it, it really works for me. The thing that doesn't work, especially in the theatrical, is the continuity of characters. Like Holt McCallany's character, Junior, uh, uh, Doctor Who, um, Golic, Paul, Paul McGann. It, I, I was <laughs> like, where, sorry, where, where, what happened to them? Where are they? And I'm looking in yeah. these corridors trying to find out who's who, where's where, until you get the close-up of Postlethwaite, the close-up of uh, Webb. Uh, and it, it's a really... There's always that's where Prometheus did it really badly as well. Their crew was just a lot of the crew were just there to be knocked off straight away, mm-hmm. and I think it really suffers in here. And I get the criticism of the corridor stuff. I just think mm-hmm. visually, I I love the POV cam. Yeah. Really. It needed it, it needed more if we had spent a little bit more time with them, or even just to know their backstory. Because there's a couple of them that get. Um, I know in the assembly cut, the one who tries to rape Ripley, the the one who puts Hot the McCallan old goggles on. Yeah, yeah he with the tear he drops. shoots he shoots a look. He's got the teardrop, so he's quite distinctive, and he sacrifices himself um, for mm, for, the, the, for others. The and we see and we see that, so therefore we feel the weight of that sacrifice. There are others in there, as you say, Pothawaite. You know, it was her idea. This um, the, unfortunately Clive from uh, Casualty or whatever. Yeah, Clive from Casualty. <laughs> <laughs> 
I didn't even notice him until the, the, the scene at the end in the foundry when they're all sort of sitting around and they're, they're arguing about, oh, are yeah. you going to go and go and do a dead, are we? <laughs> all that. I, I've, I've the, obviously, I've seen the film 20 times, but he's always the one, is this mother going to come after all of us? You know, that's yeah. it. That's the, that's cringy. the line that I always attribute to him, but. Yeah, Cause look, look at the cast list though. Like, it, it, you know, you've got Phil Davis, Postlethwaite, Holt McCallany, Christopher Fairbank, Danny Webb, Ray, Ralph Brown's given a bit to do, but those mm. guys are all great British actors. Um, oh, so excuse me, Holt McCallany's American, but I, I, I've recently worked with him and he was fucking ace. Um, and it's, he's a waste, isn't it? To, to mm, have that. Yeah. Well, it, it, you don't feel the weight of their loss apart from it, it feeding into this overall theme of selflessness and sacrifice and and it's one of the things that i do um i really do gravitate towards in the film to pull back from some of the some of the criticism is you know the bishop stuff when bishop when um when ripley finds i mean bless him he's been chucked in the bin um when she gets uh bishop out of the bin and he and he says like i could be reworked but i'll never be top of the line again and 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 that's the first moment where ripley and it's this whole idea of, of suicide being recontextualized, you know, cause I think for some people, they've still got that, that kind of old idea of it's a, it's a selfish act and, um, it's the, it's the coward's way out and it's a sign of weakness. And this film really does say actually suicide or, or sacrificing yourself can be a heroic act and something that uh, is for the collective. And that's, that that's what that whole minotaur sequence should have really been but it it just doesn't it just doesn't have the weight maybe they missed a beat there as far as explaining how the egg got in the eev there could have been a moment there if it was bishop where bishop could have confessed um and ripley could have unplugged him or or, or done something mm-hmm. there that, that explained it away cuz he's on his way out anyway and it wouldn't have uh, been yeah. again like you know that would have been quite Fincher to have completely flipped that and gone dark and yeah and just and fuck you, Cameron. You. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, he's, he's already uh, yeah he's already killed off you know the the two kind of new beloved yeah. characters and so Bishop's the, the evil. One, yeah. yeah, and he's also dead. So fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose Bishop two coming at the back. It was okay. What's going on there? Because that that's another nitpick. Um, what, what? Mm. Well, they made they made sure we knew he bled by ripping his ear off. But I thought that looked weird. I thought he looked yeah. like a robot when his ear came yeah. down. I thought that's weird. I've he looks never like seen. An but they, but they yeah. show you blood, don't they? As true, yeah. but I've never seen a, a human ear just kind of peel off to one side. Yeah, <laughs> there's another <laughs> way of him being able to it. actually talk coherently and act. Yeah, mm. yeah. Friend of the show, Lance Henriksen, making his fifth appearance. I know, yeah, yes. absolutely. Um, a, a better appearance than Color of Night, for sure, I would suggest. Um, but <laughs> one, one of the, um, one of the things I love again about that, and I, I hate to be the, uh, you know, the religious, the, the, the holder of the flame, um, when it comes down to the religious allegory, but that whole last temptation of Christ stuff, you know, we can get it out of you. You can have a normal life. And, uh, and again, in the assembly cut, there's a longer pause. So obviously, maybe Ripley will succumb to that decision. But in the theatrical cut, they don't have time for Ripley to contemplate. Uh, she's just like, no. Uh, and then obviously she goes and uh, and sacrifices herself. But but all of that, again, is wonderful. And, you know, the bit that really chokes me up is uh, 
even though 85 has been a bit of a dunce throughout, you know, smart enough to not get a life sentence on that rock. But when he kind of realizes that he's also been lied to, you know, his faith in the, the company is, is hollowed and is a shallow faith. Uh, and he tries to stop him from, because I think they shoot Morse in the knee and that's when he attacks him. It's a nice redemptive arc for him. I wanted to ask like, what you, what you thought of Ripley's um, final stand, so to speak, because I definitely got like a Joan of Arc uh, feel to it. The fire, the, the martyrdom, the shaved head, the, the striking mm-hmm. imagery of how strong she is and the religious aspects of, of her. And isn't it odd that two films around the similar time had their hero both plummet into a ball of fire this and terminated mm. too for for the for the good of mankind so, so to speak to save everyone in another religious kind of was that something that uh terry rawlins i think or was it terry rawlins i on the making of documentary who says that they they got word that this was going to be happening in Terminator 2 and they're like, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's, we, you hear stories that we've talked about it before, Dante's Peak versus Volcano, etc. Hollywood is pretty incestuous. There is no way at the scripting stage that someone, you know, somebody, somebody somewhere knew that both were kind of ending in the same arena. I, I, I do not buy coincidence. I mean, if it is, then my God, it's what it, but is it James Cameron being like, I think I'm releasing it first and you, fuck you, Fincher. Like I found <laughs> yeah. out what you're going to do. Also, <laughs> my, mine's going to be way better as well. Yeah. With the <laughs> thumb. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because the, yeah, um, you know, doesn't put a thumb up. I'm disappointed. We'll talk about the difference between the theatrical and the assembly, but either way, the effects and the, just the look of it, just, it, it it's it's unfinished again, it isn't it? It really is. Yeah. It looks so bad. Both both versions look really the, bad. When the the creature is practical, it could be the best in in like the whole series. I don't really know too much about. There's some really cool stuff in Resurrection, like puppetry, puppet wise, um, animatronic wise. But the and the ones that followed, I'm not too sure. But as as far as the first three, the man in a suit has been kind of perfected here it's tom mm. woodruff jr um and he's uh the guy in the suit and there's there's some great stuff where he's climbing at the end up the ladder and the lead is poured and it, all of that stuff the movement there it's not as balletic and and un- unusual and sexual as the original but um it, it looks great and it's just the cgi that really lets it down unfortunately. there's an odd thing though with the man in the suit alien and the dog alien that the shapes are completely different, which is yeah, the scale is an way unfortunate yeah. uh, inconsistency. What do we think then? Theatrical or assembly for Ripley's um, leap leap of faith? Is, is oh, you're talking about when it, it actually comes out? Yeah, I mean, which yeah. one? Which one do we prefer? So the studio pushed for the alien to 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 gestate and and break out of Ripley as she falls, and Fincher was was strong on no, I wanted to sacrifice herself and and not you know have its final moment uh breaking out of her so which one which one do we prefer i think it confuses the visual and it confuses the act by having the alien burst out at that exact moment and it's also like the the chest bursting scene in alien still works but there's always like little moments where the little puppet can still look a bit funny you just have to get through it with like mm-hmm. you know great filmmaking elsewhere I, it is inherently quite a funny little puppet especially by the time you get to 1992 or 1991 92 you've already seen it in 
space balls doing a little dance. So I think <laughs> it's, it, you know, you can, you can have like Elliot Goldenthal's uh, score is, is great. It's a beautiful piece of music and he really is doing a lot of, of heavy lifting, but just having this little hand puppet and then she has to grab it. It just, it makes it sillier. Mm-hmm. And in a visual that was already compromised by terrible compositing and weak VFX, it's, it kind of pushes it over the edge into yeah, silly. Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I, well, the latter, the, I, I, the assembly for me, Gally. It, I wondered it, if well, it should have come out, like, Patrick, if, could it have come out, um, like before? she falls and she kind of wrestles with it, but that just plays funny in my head. And also like it killed John Hurt immediately as soon as it yeah, comes out. Yeah. So There's I, that. I think it has to be done with a purity, just her disappearing into the, into the. And also it's a, it's a better fuck you that way. I think because uh, Bishop two had a chance then that says he had a chance because the alien hasn't come out and they'd have a chance to uh, harvest her, so to speak. How do they clone her then? How do they get the blood? Oh, Matt, hold your, hold those sandwiches for resurrection. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. We'll do the nitpicks for that next, next one. Yeah, next time. Christ. How do they clone her? Indeed. She's wearing bloody gloves. Anyway. (laughs) 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 The basement. Yeah. I know. And there's but no, no but, there's no establishing Ripley as good as basketball in this these films either. It, <laughs> no, this is true. I've never good seen Lord. her nothing but net all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, you mentioned uh, there, and uh, we, you know, we're drawing to the end of our discussion. But I think a special note should be made of Elliot Goldenthal's music. It mm. really is, you know, for 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 all of the, some of the flaws in the film. I think the music is 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 quite extraordinary. Um, I, I mentioned before about my uh, unfortunate uh, viewing of Philip Glass in New York, and uh, it reminded me a little bit of Glass, but better. There is, yeah. But I can, uh, I can, you know, you can totally understand why the producers of uh, the Batman series taking on Danny Elfman's uh, version would go to this guy, and also. Notice the stings from Demolition Man. There's there's some, yeah. there's some similar motifs, right? There's there's some stuff in. Uh, I, I actually when I was listening to the score, I, I listened. To, I pulled it up on Spotify. It's, sadly, there's no full album of the of the soundtrack available, at least on on Spotify. So I ended up uh, just listening to three songs on some sort of compilation. And because it was on Elliot Goldenthal, and I it it, uh, it rolled on to playing some pieces from the Demolition Man score. <laughs> and uh, I'd, there's a couple of pieces on the score of Demolition Man that are actually really good, kind of uh, this sort of experimental classical stuff. It's not all... No record scratching. <laughs> it's not oh, all yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Same down with the kids. There's an interesting turn in the music, though, in the rape scene, isn't there? There's it, That becomes quite... I don't know how to describe it. But I'm noticing industrial. Uh, thank you. Yeah, sure. That's total Fincher. Like, did, did you notice as well when the guy with the dog is cleaning the the vent? The song that he's singing just sounds like a Nine Inch Nails song or something like that. You know, it's all Fincher, and that kind of that industrial stuff is to his taste. I think I I, I love the score, and uh, I think it could be the best score of the bunch, like on its own. But like. As far as the way music is used in Aliens, I prefer it. Um, I, it's very evocative here and punctuates the film well, but there's like some stuff where Bishop and the, they're escaping in the dropship before before the explosion goes off and James Horner's just 
knocking it out of the park. So I'm still team aliens for the score, but, um, this one is terrific. Well, there, there are some, there are some, there are some warms that would rival Hans Zimmer in this. And I love them. Like when they're, when they're introduced, like there, there are some real like, and it's, it's all to get you off kilter as well. Like we, you know, we talked about the, uh, the camera work, but everything's kind of low angle, dutched and kind of peculiar. The, the interiors, the way they're shot are super claustrophobic because we're constantly, uh, noticing how closed in the spaces are. And, and the music, I think, also adds to that. So even though the alien is not present most of the film, um, the music kind of just adds to that kind of oppressive tone of Fincher. Yeah, I'm surprised they never worked. I don't think they ever worked together again, which surprised me, to be honest with you. But um, yeah. What I liked about uh, rewatching it finally was that um, I'd always had a very, very distinct picture in my head, which is largely the kind of inky black and kind of burnt, ochre orange amber image of it and what i really was was impressed by was was seeing it's it's really not that monochromatic there are there is variation throughout the film and there's a lot of like really nice kind of very clean lighting and even though the set design is like it uh ebert was right in these is just decaying like it's like the world is literally just like rotting out from under them there are some uh some really beautiful passages and uh like just incredible depth of lighting using light mm-hmm. to create the, the 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 space and um yeah i it was uh it was was it jordan cronenweth's one of his one of his last films i assume jordan cronenweth yeah he had parkinson's disease he did four right. days on it and then he was replaced by alex thompson who kind of continued right. the same style he was loyal to to what fincher and cronenweth had had uh, set up but Fincher sets every frame anyway. We talked on the Leon one about um, Luke Besson operating camera. And Fincher is, he works in a different way. He uses a monitor, which is what I always did at film school. I could never get near the uh, near the lens, uh, near the eyepiece of the camera. I was always on a, on a monitor and setting the frame that way. And I think he's always done that on his videos. And uh, so it didn't really alter the approach too much the lighting kind of remained the same and fincher was setting every frame anyway so yeah he 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 cast a a lonely figure in some of the making of there's some footage of him sat in a corner curled up by the monitor on his own and i just kind of felt oh that's quite emblematic of the experience and and just again just for wider context and please you know seek out the quadrilogy if i'm not you know i'm getting into the summary just yet but the making of is really fascinating, but I do know that Fincher has kind of, after years of, of kind of dismissing the film has, has slowly walked back. Um, I think he did a recent interview when he was re- discussing Mank and he, he actually seems to have kind of grown a bit more affection towards the film. But I know that, you know, at 28 years old, helming this juggernaut of a series at the time, you know, I don't envy him, uh, especially considering the studio Madeline that was going on. But um, one of my favorite bits, just to go back, Devlin, as far as the lighting setup, horrible scene as it is, but the uh, the autopsy location yeah. and the lighting in that is just, it's just superb. It's just incredible. He said something interesting on the commentary, Thompson. He said, uh, they always forget to show, um, no, maybe it was uh, Rawlings or uh, no. I think Thompson said that they shot it a certain way and they showed the source of the light coming from above okay. and then um rawlings didn't you know, the editors didn't use 
the source. So you've got all this beautiful lighting that's all been thoroughly thought through mm-hmm. and the editors choose not to, to, to show where the light is coming from. That's a source of frustration for a lot of DOPs, I think. It was also yeah. quite a challenging film to, to be lit because of the low angles. You know, traditionally the, 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 the gaffer would light from, you know, you'd have a, you wouldn't usually see the ceilings as much in a, in a studio, but because Finch is so low and the, the ceilings are so pertinent and important, it was a different way of lighting that was, um, you know, I, I can't remember the gaffer's name, I'm sorry, but he seemed to enjoy the challenge and yeah, good results. I think it's a good looking film. There was a, a Fincher story. Um, Alex Thompson was, uh, trying to light a shot and there's some scaffolding in the background that they didn't want to appear. And he said, I don't know how to light this one because I can't hide the scaffolding. And Fincher wiped his nose with his finger and got some grease and rubbed the grease on the lens to diffuse it. (laughs) And they said that that shot is now in the movie and you can't see the scaffolding. Wow. Uh, So I thought that was interesting. If if I tried anything like that at film school, I would have been beaten up, I think. But you can get away with it. Well, we were experimenting with Galley and, and Luke Subway <laughs> with some fucking tights in, um, oh, yeah. in the electric press building to see, to see what they would have done to the lens. Bloody hell. Yeah. yeah. No, we, um, yeah, bless, bless Venture. He, uh, he set off some, some inspiration for me to do all these weird and wonderful things. I suppose before we get to our final thoughts on Alien 3, we, we haven't really talked about the man and I guess, it's partly down to the fact that he's obviously kind of disowned the film slightly, um, and he, he doesn't really uh, see this one as 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 a, as a complete vision. But what are what are of our? I don't think this will be the last film we ever do with David Finchers. But what what are our thoughts in his early film career? Loved him until Panic Room. Um, oh God! I, I was I was really no. I'll wax his car because he's he was a big. Not influence, because I never tried to emulate him, really. I just had admiration for him. And I loved... Um, I didn't really attach him to Alien 3. Uh, it was it wasn't until Fight Club. And then and I'd seen Seven, but I didn't really know who made it. And I, I, back then, I didn't really understand. I didn't really know too much about directors as such. I, it wasn't until a bit later when I got into filmmaking that I kind of worked out, oh, Fincher did that and that. So I, I was disappointed when Panic Room came around. Uh, I love Seven. Um, people go for Zodiac, but I'll, um, I'd rather watch seven 10 times in a row than, than watch Zodiac. But I, I, I admire it. I, I think it's well put together, but I, I just think his choices veered off somewhere where I was less interested in them. Uh, he's a great technical filmmaker, but, um, yeah, I, I lost, lost touch with Fincher, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. Well, go back and watch the game, Douglas Fincher. Ah, that, yeah, the game's yeah. not bad. Love the game. I am. Um, mm. I actually quite liked uh, uh, Gone Girl. I kind of forget about it sometimes, but um, I, th- I thought it was uh, pretty well put together. I think it's a really good wheelhouse for him because it's like it's quite a nasty little, well constructed yeah. thriller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is maybe uh, much like the game. That's kind of a, a, a better sort of situation for him to to be in and out of because he does have such a potentially dim view of humanity maybe <laughs> i i did like um social network on on second yes. viewing i liked it much yeah. more the second time as well any any favorite scenes before we get to our final thoughts uh for alien 3 well my my one's clear cut um it's the uh the cross cutting technique which i i never really appreciated uh, as much as i should have because we were made to study it 
when we studied The Godfather at uh, AS film, A A level film, and it was the the baptism and the the whackings in in Godfather when Michael is becoming the Godfather, and uh, it's when it's done right, it's one of the most cinematic things you can do. And there's there's some really great ones in this, but it's the um, uh, the birth of the creature and the 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 cremation of uh uh hicks and uh, and yeah life and dex and with every every seed is the promise of a flower yeah yeah i, I yeah, think that's that's the strongest moment and the score there is terrific too yes it really is yeah what about you devils as i mentioned earlier it's it's the extended version of the opening it's uh um i think it's really beautiful and i think it carried me a long way through the film uh, it, it set up such a kind of, it's, it's such a perfect scene setter for the, the tone that we're going to be into. It differentiates it from the previous films. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's really evocative and, uh, I'm honestly baffled as to why they, uh, why they excised it from the final version of the films. That's, <laughs> that's mine. Uh, how about you, Patrick? Uh, well, when I was writing this down, interestingly, two little bits in the film that tie me back to Aliens and Alien, which is maybe quite telling of the film, but special mention to the uh, Bishop uh, animatronic head where, when she has a conversation with that, because I think that's Ace, and the autopsy with Newt, I think he's very intimate and striking and like really visceral. And Weaver's really great in that because of her performance and the uh, the loss of a child and her her kind of mourning. I I think is a really good s- setup going into the film and her relationship with uh, I was going to say dance <laughs> Clemens <laughs> Clemens yeah Mr. Clemens Mr. Clemens um they're, they're my kind of favourite bits. Well, just to uh, add levity, it will be. Charles Dance or Mr. Clements, and the only time on screen I've ever heard him go a, a touch northern, and that's when he goes, uh, it's stenciled on the back of your shorts. Yeah. And I was like, Charles, <laughs> Charles Dance, you son of a bitch, you've got a northern accent. <laughs> cool. Well, um, well, let's, well, let's get into our final thoughts. So, um, so team, uh, I'll start with you, Patrick. Final thoughts on Alien 3, and do you recommend it to our listeners? Uh, I don't know which one to... Uh, I'll hold off on the recommendation just yet, and I'm going to judge it at the end. Because I I quite like Alien 3, despite all its flaws. Um, I still... And now I'm kind of more... Now that I know that there's an assembly cut, and I didn't before, and I hadn't seen it before, and I've watched it once, I really, really, really want to rewatch it and to soak it up a bit more. I had such problems with like characters of Junior and, and Golic before that bothered me and I wanted to know what happened to them years ago. And now that I know, I think it's a stronger film, which is really great for me because I never really had a problem with Alien 3 ultimately, but it was one I haven't really revisited for, for years until until now and I'm glad we have because I think I have a better understanding of it I think I can see what Fincher was trying to do in a lot of it despite its production flaws and everything I think it's a really good looking film and the practical elements of, of, of an alien film are, will always bring me back anyway um, I think Walt Weaver's really great as Ripley again because I don't know it's Ripley isn't it it's, she's Ripley's one of the best characters ever 
And Charles, you've got a bit of Charles Dance, a bit of POV cam, which I like. I like Dylan. It's just some odd scripting and some clumsy plotting to, in the, in the, from the second act to the third, which lets the film down quite a lot. I do recommend it. It's, it's, um, just to go back to Critics Corner a little bit, Matt, you'll enjoy this. Empire gave this two star, but it gave Alien Resurrection three stars. And I, I, I don't, I don't agree with that. Uh, just for a little bit of future sandwiches to to be eaten right now. So yeah, I I recommend it because it's Ripley is one of the main things really. And it's, yeah. Um, how about you, Matt? Uh, first I wanted to address my, I don't like alien three either comment from the aliens podcast. It was a bit hasty (laughs) and not entirely true. So I, I will retract it. Um, I remember cause, cause Gally said, uh, it was about the hypersleep dream theory and about it being, you know, oh, that the narrative no. could end at the end of aliens and alien three and resurrection and all that are just bad dreams. All right. I'm um, just about to just tell the guys from the basement, go back down. Yeah. It's all right. He's yeah, retracted, back it. Down He's retracted it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sure. I, <laughs> I hate that this is her fate and Hicks and Newt too, but, um, yeah, uh, there's no way an egg gets on board. <laughs> Absolutely no way. We can't explain it. Um, but you know, we, we've done all that. Um, I mustn't be feeling well because I'm, <laughs> hey man. Uh, I'm with Ebert when he says the kills are a bit repetitive. Um, so go on, Rog. I'll wax this car today. Um, the ambiguous sexual peculiarity and that balletic suspense we talked about has been replaced by a sheer force and brutality and that doesn't sustain my interest for for as long it's uh once that shock value is has worn off there's not as much there as the original uh the positives i think there's a sparseness uh the strength of the images is undeniable it's really neatly thought out i wanted to mention the honorable mention for favorite scenes is the very end when you're seeing all the locations again and all the doors are closing and it's just a really succinct way to end it. It reminded me of Halloween, you know, when you see all of the, the things at the end of Halloween. I'd love to rip that off and put that in a film one day. Uh, I love the sets. I think it was Norman Reynolds, the designer, that said Fincher wanted it to look like it had all been hosed down. Um, uh, the mess hall, the furnace, the church, uh, the church-like meeting room, and the assembly hall, the vent shafts. I love all of that. I think there's a bit of a missed opportunity with the rapists and the celibacy and the concept of the religion, that's all very meaty in terms of themes to explore and very ripe for a social commentary. But I, one woman thrown into that was the perfect setup for agenda discussion and exploration. You know, the female centerpiece in the alien films is, is the through line. And I thought that could have been explored a bit, a bit more. Um, uh, without eating all of my LVR MP sandwiches early, it's, for me, it's not the best of the bunch. It's not the second best, but it's the best of the rest. And that includes the Ridley Scott returns for me. Um, uh, it changed the stakes a bit. It had to go under aliens. Um, you couldn't top it for a large scale action. So it had to go a different route. Um, I think Terry Rawlins knew what was going on. It was Scott aping and not a Cameron continuation. 
Um, I believed all the isolation and the hopelessness and the bickering and the tension and the nihilism of it all. Uh, it's a dark but appropriate end to that trilogy. If you look at it as a closed loop, as far as the, the first three films, I do think it's quite a nice bookend. Uh, I admire the bold, dark departure. Uh, and you don't usually get something this morbid and depressive and on such a big scale. Uh, it was a bit much for an 11 year old, but I can deal with it more. Now I was a bit shell shocked seeing all of my favorite characters dead. Um, I'm not going to pretend it's a masterpiece. It's not aliens. Um, but you know, there's a lot of people out there saying it's up there with the first two and I'm, I'm not quite there with them. Um, as the final film in the, in a trilogy, I, I think it's all right. Uh, as the third installment in a franchise or a saga, uh, this is just a saga now. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's a bit of a, a misstep for me. Um, but, uh, as a leisurely Sunday afternoon watch, why not? Um, leisurely Sunday. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't imagine it, having, I couldn't imagine having a roast chicken and, uh, and Yorkshire puts <laughs> and then putting Alien 3 on that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not Sunday afternoon. It was for me. It was a, a, a strange Sunday afternoon watch, but, um, which cut to go for? I'm still not entirely sure. I'd, I'd probably go for the more thorough, the more thorough coherent story in the longer one. The, the, that probably edges it for me, the, the assembly. And I'm, I'm always keen to go back to it. I agree with you, Patrick. I always like to, to watch this one again. So again, mixed, mixed bag from me, but there's, there's lots of positives. Um, I'll I, I will over. just quickly add before we go into the next one. Yeah. I, I wish there was, Gally, you said about the fear. I, I'm disappointed there's no like proper face hugger scene that the fear no, there's, the face there, there, there isn't. Yeah. I, is, I think, uh, I think Fincher yeah. has, has, has mentioned it in interviews that he failed in, in the, the most base level of his job, which is to create fear in, in an alien movie. And, and for whatever, whatever we, you know, we, we all love aliens. There are those moments in aliens as well, despite it being an action packed, you know, you've got the Scotland face hugger going towards Sigourney, which always will elicit uh, a pretty, you know, I will go behind the pillow, etc. There is nothing in Alien 3 that is going to do that for you. In my opinion, apart from maybe the autopsy, which is the wrong, you know, that's the wrong kind of, it's almost gross out as opposed we, to. We've talked about the difference between like, uh, disgust and, and fear and like gore and suspense. And, uh, it, it is lacking in some of those things. Yeah, it is, brutal, it really is, but yeah. uh, it's, it's lacking in the suspense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, devils. Um, I'm going to give it a very soft recommend if you haven't seen it in a while. Um, I think probably most of your points that you just made, Matt, I would, I would, echo except to say that i don't really see myself coming back to this one um a, a lot um for all that there are these scenes that are really fantastically well staged i think the piecemeal nature of the plot and the relentless misery kind of work against each other like i'm all for being completely bummed out by something but i really need to feel like i i need to feel like i know why not just sort of intellectually understand why i know i'm i'm being bummed out like uh, it has to mean something more than just the actions that are happening on screen and for all that there are allusions to religious allegory and 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 the sacrifice and and these kind of wider notions i don't think that they're played out in a way that i don't feel like there was a hand on the tiller throughout even in in the the overarching narrative so even though individual parts of the film are fantastic it fails just as often as it succeeds 
Um, you're still looking at a film that was essentially chasing a release date for corporate profits and retroactively trying to inject artistry into it. Um, and by the end of the admittedly superior assembly cut, I was just sort of ready for it to be over. I it kind of fizzled. Um, so it's like a testament to perseverance that, that they did manage to make so much work against such odds and, and that it thematically it's a fitting and daring conclusion to Ripley's story. If, if as it was intended to be at least, um, and a statement of like undeniable talent that David Fincher has. Um, but in the end, it's just too fractured and unfocused to be considered like any sort of lost classic. And I think it just comes down to like you're saying that the themes can be strong and the execution can be strong in parts, but if the execution isn't strong throughout, it's, I understand why this film was, was not well received, not just because of what a whiplash it was from this, from the film that, that preceded it. It just, it just couldn't stick the landing and, so it makes it an interesting watch, but I just for me, I don't think it would be something I would go back to because I don't, I didn't find it that enjoyable. I think, um, but I know that uh, Gally, you do watch it quite a lot, so I'm intrigued to hear. Yes, I was just going to warn you there, Devon. I've just peered out my window and I've just seen a group of Y chromos riding oxes. <laughs> uh, I believe they're heading your way. Uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm only kidding. Um, so no, I think actually I, I'm going to echo pretty much, uh, uh, all of your summaries and, and especially yours, Devlin. It's a difficult one because I really enjoy the assembly cut, which I think is the closest thing to Finch's vision that we got. And I admire it greatly for, for the risks that it took with the franchise and how willing initially the studio were to explore new ground, uh, in the alien series. And, and not succumbing to kind of seekolitis, which uh, I think a lot of franchises do fall into that trap nowadays. Um, however, the third act that, that, you know, Patrick, you identified it, that kind of blurring between the second and third act, um, it really does lose its way. Uh, and, I, and I think um, endless running around corridors with nameless prisoners, which we don't have any kind of emotional attachment to, uh, means that it kind of feels a bit perfunctory and almost an exercise in technique as opposed to, you know, a compelling emotional uh, through line that we can follow. It's a mild recommendation, uh, as I do think a lot of people will be turned off by it. But I think it gets stronger on multiple viewings. Devlin, clearly you will not go for that. But um, but I think if you, um, you know, if you watch it multiple times and you can kind of remove that incomplete film that it is uh but but maybe you're right maybe it's just because you know i enjoy uh sort of going over it and trying to trying to find the things that that were probably we talk about it with with directors about intent and intentionality so i guess i'm just trying to find the intent uh but it's not all there on the screen I, and i can i can recognize that um but i am glad that the film is kind of being rediscovered and some people are giving it more, you know, more credit than it probably once got. Uh, because I think if you're at base level, if you're checked out because Newton Hicks bit the dust, then I'm not entirely sure that you're a proper alien fan because it's Ripley who's the key player here, not, uh, not Hicks and Newt. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's where I sign. So it's a, it's a mild recommend, uh, for me. Okay. But I do recognize that Charles Dance is also great. 
and Sigourney recognized it and they didn't get on. And now I know why. Um, so where, where team can, uh, can our listeners find, uh, Alien 3? I don't believe it's streaming anywhere, is it? It it's is. Another one. In, in England. It's on Now it's, TV. Uh, oh, now it is TV on Now TV. Oh. And Sky Go. And in America, you can stream it on Prime Video. Oh, good, good. But go but again, recommend the Quadrilogy box. Again. Yeah, every, yeah, every single it. time. Uh, you yeah, get it on, uh, on the Blu-ray if you can, because, um, the additional scenes in the assembly cut have, have now been properly ADR'd and the sound mix has been complete because I've got the old, uh, DVD. Forgive my cheapness. I went to computer exchange about eight years ago and bought it for £2.50. So I've got the old DVD version and the sound mix for the assembly cut is, uh, well, it's bloody obvious because you can hear Charles Dutton, uh, sounds like he's in a toilet, like, it's how you're going to take it. It's, um, it's, it's, it's not good, but you, um, on the Blu-ray, I believe Devlin, cause you bought it. It's all been cleaned up. Yes. Uh, and the great version I watched was, well. it was, uh, it was a completely different experience from watching the assembly cut with you all those years ago, which is that I remember it basically being a copy and paste job. And there were, it, it seemed like there were scenes that were dubbed straight from a VHS tape. Whereas, yeah, they really have cleaned it up very nicely and integrated yeah. it. It's, uh, it plays like a, like a full film. Yeah. The, the danger being though that you can, uh, really see the seams, uh, in a Blu-ray for the effects, but, you know, you giveth and you taketh away. So there we go. Um, as far as the Alien series, the next one up is Alien Resurrection. Um, Alien not Ardon. De- oh, yeah, indeed. Alien, um, <laughs> Le, Le French. Um, I don't know, however you want to describe it. Uh, so if you listeners, if you enjoy the show, you enjoy what we do, uh, please like, share, and, uh, if you can pen a wee review on, on Apple, iTunes, uh, preferably five, but I'll take one, whatever, whatever the star rating you want to give us. Um, but yeah, please, uh, please do that. Helps people come to the show, uh, and expands the community of rewinders. Uh, and hopefully we can, you know, get some, some XYs instead of all of us double Ys over here. <laughs> I, I think we should say our goodbyes, team. Uh, we're all going to die. And the only question is, how are you going to check out? So on that cheery note, it's Galley in Glasgow signing off. Stay safe. Stay safe, everyone. Uh, well, at least I got off the morphine. It's definitely in London. <laughs> Quick, easy, and painless. It's Patrick in Cardiff. It's the chance of a lifetime. We love you, Lance. It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.